0: Hello, this is Jana Byers, one of the hosts of the New Books and History channel of the New Books Work New Books Network, and I am here with Elizabeth Harodovich, author of The Venetian Discovery of America: Geographic Imagination and the Print Culture and Print Culture in the Age of Encounters out 2019 from Cambridge University Press. Hi, Liz.
1: Hi, Jana. How are you? Ah, oh, great. It is
0: a beautiful day in Amsterdam. How are things in New Mexico? They're sunny and heating up. We're getting ready. <laughs> oh, yeah.
1: <laughs> <I bet. laughs> yeah.
0: All right. Um, so I just want to let you know that I, um, I was a, I sat down with your absolutely gorgeous volume and and uh, zoomed through it at about the fastest rate you can go through an academic book when, you know, which requires that you sit and think about things. It's just absolutely beautiful. Uh, and I've really enjoyed it. And, uh, so I'd like to hear, I'd love to hear you talk to me about it. So let's start with, uh, I'd like to know a bit about you. Tell me about you. Where are you from? Um, tell me about your work more generally. How does
1: this fit in? Like, what, what do we need to know when we start this book? Huh? Okay. Well, those are some big questions. Where to begin? Uh, I am from Philadelphia and I went to Oberlin College. I graduated in 1992. And when I went to college, I really wanted to be an artist. I was determined to be a painter. And my freshman year, uh, I took a painting class and didn't get a very good grade in it. And at the same time, I was mesmerized by my History 101 class, uh, Western European History That was taught by a medieval intellectual historian, and I was an immediate convert, and it's sort of (laughs) pulled down from there. Um, And I then went to the University of Michigan. I got my PhD in European history in 2000, and in the meantime, lived in Venice for quite some time in the 1990s. And then eventually, a little bit later, moved to southern New Mexico, where I've worked for, oh my goodness, almost 20 years by now. Wow. Yeah. So very, very far uh, culturally and geographically from the watery lagoon that I've ended up writing about. (laughs) An interesting contrast, I think.
0: Hmm. Yeah, definitely. Although right there, I've been mean, with your interest, this your new global interest, and the way this ties
1: in with the new world, you're you're right there. It's true. It does fit in that way, which hopefully we'll have a chance to talk about today. Yeah, excellent.
0: So uh, this is also a bit of a departure—the Venetian discovery of America. I mean, it has bears some resemblance, and it's certainly within the same family time zone location. But it's a it represents kind of a shift for you
1: from your last work as well. What what brought you to this? Let's see. It's kind of an an interesting story, I think. Uh, I write a little bit about in the acknowledgments and the introduction to this book that I started to think about the relationship between Venice and the Americas when I was a graduate student, when I was doing research for my dissertation again in Venice in the 1990s, Uh, in large part uh, because of the experience that I had with this Venetian family that I went to the beach with. And I have this idea that, I don't know, Yana, you may or may not agree with that when we write about history, we're actually always writing about ourselves in one autobiographical way or another. And those connections sometimes aren't super clear, but sometimes they're very clear. And in this case, for me, they were very clear. And what I mean by that is that When I would go to the beach with this group of Venetians, we would go to a capanna, which is like a beach hut on the Lido. Mm -hmm. And uh, Venetians tend to share these beach huts between, I don't know, anywhere from 50 to 75 people. And at the time I went to the beach with this group of people, I was the only American really on the beach at the time and we didn't often have a lot in common so we almost inevitably ended up talking about america and it was fascinating because no one in that 75 person beach hut had ever been to america but boy did they have mm-hmm. a lot of opinions about america so i would get to hear day in and day out about how america had no culture and it had no history and the food was terrible and the <laughs> family and there 's nothing like being a foreigner in another country and hearing your own country criticized to bring out a nationalist thread in your thinking, uh, so again, after getting hammered with this day in and day out, it slowly encouraged me to wonder what did Venetians five hundred or four hundred years ago think about the discovery of the new world and about the americas and It was this sort of these discussions in the speech hut that prompted me to think about this relationship between Europe and the new world. Uh, long before global history actually became the topic that it is today. So that's uh, my autobiographical story about how I became interested in this topic. So at the time, yes, I was writing this dissertation that eventually became a book about blasphemy and insults and slander about foul language in 16th century Venice. And I I began to pick up this second interest that percolated over the next 20 years.
0: Wonderful. Yeah. Oh, that's a familiar story. I love the yeah, the whole you have no culture. I love that one. Or like, you know, from kids who are wearing like Levi's and um, you have no food. It's like, oh, I have no idea what we have.
1: Yeah, well, it's funny because I loved the people that I went to this beach with. They were wonderful. They were wonderful families. But there were many days where I wanted to sort of say, you know, does Italy have a space program? I really want to sort of assert the greatness of America that I am normally the first person to criticize in many instances. But in any case, it did spur my interest in this topic. And the thing that was really interesting is that I discovered almost immediately, just scratching the surface with some initial research, again, in the mid-1990s, that there was seemingly a direct parallel that we had these Venetians on the beach who had never been to America, but who had so many opinions about it, as did early modern Venetians who also rarely if ever traveled to the new world and yet had so much to say about it and so many opinions about it. So it was interesting to discover that direct parallel relationship between the opinions of modern and the opinions of early modern people. That's
0: great. Um, Uh, And it's a thread you bring out really well in this book. So uh, let me the, the biggest of the questions. What do you what's what's your argument here? What do you contribute with this book?
1: So I hope that at least on some level, this book can speak both to professional academics and professional historians, as well as to general audiences in the sense that Even someone who is a casual tourist to Venice and goes there for the first time or for only one day, I think it maybe becomes apparent pretty quickly that we tend to think of Venice as a city of the east, right? It was first governed early in its history by Byzantine rulers. The city made its wealth trading with the east by trading in pepper, in particular, from eastern Mediterranean ports The city visually is very Eastern looking, covered in mosaics and OG arches, or we might think of the onion domes of the Church of San Marco and the ceremonial center of the city. So culturally and visually, we tend to think of it as Byzantine and Islamic. But what I want to show in this book, surprisingly, is that in the 16th century, Venice also became linked to the Americas, not in its visual culture or in any of those sort of more obvious ways, but in its print culture and its globalizing mental universe that reflected and constructed that print culture. So I want everyone to get this sense that Venice, yes, it's a city of the East, but it's also a city of the Americas. Mm hmm
0: and i think there's a lot of myth making or a lot of myths that have been made that um italy uh it, it venice in particular but italy more broadly has nothing to do with the new world right the shift focuses from the from constantinople to New York, and that's the end of it, or Mexico City.
1: (laughs) Yeah, I mean, I think one of the points that I tried to make early on in my book is that compared to the Iberians, compared to the Spanish and the Portuguese, and then later the French and the Dutch and the English, very, very few Venetians ever traveled to the Americas, as I mentioned just a few moments ago. But its print houses printed more information about the Americas in the first, let's say, three quarters of the 16th century than almost any other city in Europe. So German presses were very active in printing news about the discovery of America, as were presses in Paris. But Venice was right up there. And we can see that Venetian map and editors and cosmographers very fascinatingly, I think, used discussions and news about the uh, the discovery of the Americas or news about these unknown lands. They use this information actually to talk about Venice, to talk about their city and how great and powerful it was and how magnificent and important its history was. So I tend to like to describe my book by saying that while Iberians conquered territory in the New World... Venice became this clearinghouse of printed information and in that way they kind of conquered and dominated knowledge through print Mm -hmm. and were really sort of crucial in communicating a lot of the first blush of knowledge about the Americas to the rest of Europe. Uh, So I always encourage to imagine Venice in the early 16th century and the streets even that you might walk up and down today as packed with print houses that if you were to walk up to them, you would find maps and books and uh, books of cosmography in particular that covered the Americas and the new world much more than any other city. Um, this is a the, something that I
0: would like everyone to think about. And I think it's probably, uh, in, except for maybe the small world of Venetian historians, it's kind of lost just the general importance of early modern Venetian printing which is a point you make early on.
1: Yeah. And I think it's kind of ironic because I don't know if you've noticed this Yana, but bookstores have closed left and right in Venice and it's kind of painful Mm -hmm. today in the 21st century to see this city, not the city that invented print, but the city that really used print first, I would argue Mm -hmm. has very few bookstores at all.
0: (laughs) Oh, it's so sad. Um, you know, uh, Well, I mean, bookstores are closing everywhere, and obviously we are women of the book, so it's no shock that this is disappointing. But when I think about walking down these little and there would be print houses, there would be people making literature, like making these books. And these old books are still in the libraries. You can still get to them, but you, there's no tr- no print culture left there anymore.
1: Yeah, there's really very like little, it. Which you're right. It's happening all over the place, but it, I think that loss has a particular resonance uh, in Venice. In yeah, its absolutely. case, uh, yeah, I think it's really an important thing to imagine Venice as both Eastern and a city of the Americas, and perhaps most fundamentally as this city that really took the technology of print and ran with it and look at the surprising things that they did with it. Uh, again, that they used discussions or news about the Americas to teach the world about how great their city was kind of ironically. <laughs> which
0: is uh yeah, that you talk about in chapter two compiled geographies, which you open with an Italo Calvino quote
1: brilliantly. Um, do you wanna tell us what you what you discuss here? Sure. So in Italo Calvino's book Invisible Cities, he has this great dialogue between Marco Polo and Kublai Khan, the great Khan of China. And this dialogue in some ways embodies the meaning of my book in many ways. And Kublai Khan is asking Marco Polo to tell him about his empire in China because Marco Polo served as an administrator in the Mongol Empire and traveled all over the empire and saw various different parts of it and then came back to the Khan and reported on what he saw. And at a certain point... Uh, the Khan says to him, you know, you've told me about all of these different parts of my empire. And in addition, you've talked to me about all these other different parts of the world that you've seen. Uh, And he says to Marco Polo, how come you never talk to me about Venice. And uh, it's a very poignant moment in the dialogue where Marco Polo turns to, you know, the emperor of the Chinese and says very clearly, you know, every time I talk to you about any other part of the world, I'm always talking about Venice, (laughs) Uh, which is exactly what all of these Venetian print men who are printing these books and maps about the Americas are doing in the 16th century.
0: Oh, uh, what a uh, that that also has particular renaison, resonance for the lovers of Venice. There is there is but Venice. So how how does this? <laughs> tell me how this
1: works a little more. Like what what are we seeing in print? So I think maybe I don't want to jump ahead too much, but in some ways the best way to describe how this works in detail is to talk a little bit about the sources that I use in these different chapters. Yeah, great. Let's do. So historians use different methods of organization, as you know, uh, to Mm -hmm. pull together their sources when they make uh, an argument or stake a claim about what happened in the past. Uh, And sometimes arguments unfold chronologically. In this book, my argument unfolds in terms of the different types of sources that I've looked at. So in chapter two, I look at some of the earliest travelogues or collections Mm -hmm. of travel literature printed in Venice that discuss the Americas. So that's kind of a broad survey. In chapter three, I talk about one very important Venetian cosmographer and editor in particular, the work of a cosmographer named Giovanni Battista Ramuzio. In chapter four, I talk about Venetian printed maps Uh, In chapter five, I talk about one particular, I think, very important, small but important printed book, uh, a book written in 1558 by a Venetian patrician who claimed that the Venetians had actually been to the Americas before Columbus. Uh, We can come back to that if uh, we'd like to. (laughs) And then I conclude with a final chapter that talks about printed images in costume books And another genre of printed images called Isolardi, which were books of islands, which tended to compare both these costume books and these books of islands, tended to compare Venice to Tenochtitlan or Mexico City. So you get the sense that these chapters are organized by different types of sources. And what I do is try to show the same argument through all of these different lenses, which is that when editors and printers are writing about the new world, as I mentioned before, they're always also writing about Venice, just like Marco Polo talking to the great Khan. And often when they do so, what they say is that whatever the Iberians had done, Marco Polo had done first, and he did it better. And what Marco Polo had done was much more important. That is, the historical explorations undertaken by the Venetians uh, in the Middle Ages for these 16th century Venetian printers and editors were much more important and more significant than anything the Portuguese or Spanish were doing in the 16th century. So that is to say that it was Venetian travelers and their texts who first introduced Europe to China, which was what Marco Polo did. And it was Venetians who first revealed the riches of the East. And this was historically, again, for these 16th century printmen, much more monumental than anything Columbus had done. Uh, So that's kind of a a big picture and I'm happy to uh, sort of enlarge any uh, of those components if you'd like to.
0: Um, that's a great overview. Well, um, (laughs) um, (laughs) brilliant. So, um, I think, well, let's just tell me a little bit about the Venetian travelogue in the Americas. Sure. What are... Talk to me maybe about travel literature as well.
1: Sure. So travel literature uh, is one of the sort of new things that starts to blossom hand in hand with the discovery of a great variety of new worlds for Europeans around the globe at the beginning of the 16th century, hand in hand with the rise of print culture. So it kind of makes a certain sense that in the moment that the printing press and its technology are becoming better known and on the rise, it's at the same time that there is this age of encounters where worlds all over the globe are are making contact for often the first time. And in Europe, one of the results of this is uh, the rise of what we would call travel logs or travel literature, where European writers are writing about, uh, news from other lands, letters they've received from other lands, or people who have explored other worlds. And in Venice, the travelogues that are produced in that city are some of the first to mention the Americas in print at all. So that's why they're of interest to me. And uh, without going into too many examples, some of the descriptions in that chapter are a little bit technical. I think one of the sort of most colorful examples we can talk about from that chapter is that, for instance, one Venetian editor, when he read Columbus's letters, and in particular, Columbus's Mm -hmm. description of Cuba, Columbus describes having seen enormous lizards on the island of Cuba. And this Venetian editor, whose name was Alessandro Zorzi, read this printed letter uh, of Columbus or marking or telling us about the new world. And he picked up his pen and he drew marginalia in the margins of this letter. And he drew pictures uh, and drawings of lizards on the page. And he says in his own handwritten scribble, These must be the same lizards that Marco Polo talked about in China. So we see very clearly through this example and all of these other travelogues that I talk about in this chapter that Venetians directly saw the Americas through the lens of Marco Polo's Asia. They assumed that it was Asia and that it was connected to Asia and all of their commentary points in that direction. Uh, And there was good reason for them to do so because everybody knew about Asia from Marco Polo's travelogue, so their tendency to understand this new world as Asian, uh, this Venetian tendency made a lot of sense. Mm-hmm. But that's a good specific example that illuminates what I think is interesting about this travel literature.
0: Mm-hmm. Uh, and it is—it's worth noting just how popular this is. That travel literature explodes. Europeans are clamoring for it and can't read enough
1: of it. Absolutely devour it. And travel literature then begins to take off very soon in other cities as well. So Venice kind of gets this genre going and then it becomes a European genre Mm -hmm. in a more widespread way. Um, And then
0: selling this through the lens of like, you know, something you understand Clearly, these are the things Marco Polo talks about. Yeah. Um, I Also a note for um, if you are still on the fence, gentle listener about whether you should buy this book. Um, these pages are reproduced in it and they're, yeah. and they're great. I have to tell you, I got uh, when I was looking at the print, the actual text, I got a little like, oh, you know, memory of trying to read this stuff. Um Whew, that hurt a little, but
1: marginalia you, this is-, is just so incredible because it's this powerful moment of seeing someone, a historical actor in real time, working out their thoughts and imaginings right in front of you. So I think marginalia is this incredible source for historians whenever we can find it in that way.
0: It's very cool. And it is <laughs> um, it's an opportunity. You know, this is this is what historians do in the archive. But it this gives you an opportunity to see what, what those people are doing, what yeah. historians are looking at day in yeah. and day out. And and this is a particularly cool moment where you can see the little scribbles from someone, you know. Yes. Very yeah. cool. All
1: right. So let's move on and tell me about Ramuzio. <laughs> So Giovanni Battista Ramuzio was a Venetian humanist, meaning he studied ancient literature and he was an editor, uh, meaning that he compiled the texts of other people into polished new printable texts. And he was also a cosmographer. So he was educated in Geography and cosmography and uh, the relationship, he, uh, what he understood to be the relationship between different parts uh, of the globe at the time. And he is kind of famous, if we can use that word, among early modern historians widely cast for having produced what we call the first history of exploration in the modern West, let's say. He produced this three-volume set of tomes that included all of the literature and correspondence that he could find or get his hands on uh, about other lands at the time. It was published between in the 1550s, essentially. And um, he was able to get his hands on a lot of that literature because he worked for the Venetian Chancellery. So he was in contact with ambassadors and a great variety of people who worked for the Venetian government who would bring him news. So he was in a really great position to collect these accounts, which he then edited and put together and published in these three volumes. And what I show in this chapter, uh, Ramuzio has been studied a lot from a great variety of perspectives. And in general, his collection has been described as sort of the first objective scientific account of travel and exploration And what I try to show gently in this chapter is that, yes, while that's true, Venetian, Ramuzio had a a powerful Venetian perspective himself. And he was uh, among the most powerful voices uh, saying what I referred to earlier, that, well, Columbus did something, but really what Marco Polo did was much more difficult. Uh, And if it's okay, I thought I might actually read a direct quote from his work to get a sense of what he sounds like and the point that he wants to make. He argues that uh, the Venetian overland voyage to Cathay, again, was much more dangerous and arduous and lengthy and ultimately, again, monumental than Columbus's voyage across the Atlantic to the Americas. And Ramuzio says, and this is his quote, that's a little on the long side, but I think it merits a read. He says, quote, "'Many times I have thought the same thing to myself "'about the most marvelous, marvelous voyage made by land "'by our Venetian gentleman.'" And that they made by sea by the aforesaid Christopher Columbus and wondered which of the two was more marvelous. And if I am not deceived by affection for my country, it seems likely to me that the one by land should be placed before that by sea as being necessary to take note of the enormous greatness of soul with which so difficult an enterprise was carried out and brought to a conclusion along such an extraordinarily long and bitter route." along which for lack of life, not for days, but for months, they were forced to bring supplies with them. For themselves and their animals," unquote. So you can see here that Ramuzio thinks that what Polo did was incredibly difficult, which in fact that it was uh, going overland from Venice to uh, what is today Beijing. And by comparison, Ramuzio reasoned that Columbus had been quote merely blown by the wind, <laughs> having easily and comfortably carried abundant provisions with him to the New World. So if we put this another way. But Ramuzio's main point is when we sort of read the paratextual material, meaning the setup around Mm -hmm. uh, the, the text that he's collected, he says that the Iberians really hadn't discovered anything, whether it be the Portuguese going east or the Spanish going west. All they did was follow in the footsteps of the Venetian traveler, Marco Polo. That's for me, one of the main takeaways from Ramuzio's collection, which I, I heard you laugh, Jan, and it is kind of <laughs> laughable. It's, it's funny. It's great. No, it's, and it, but I mean, you know, there's an argument there. What? You just got on your boat. He didn't even. He wanted. He even go anywhere. that the Venetians were much more valiant and intrepid travelers than anything that was happening in the 16th century. And people in the 16th century wouldn't even be looking for these lands had it not been mm-hmm. for Polo's text again that shared a knowledge of China with Europeans for really the first time. It's it's a tough argument uh, to argue. It's tough <laughs> to argue <laughs> with that. <laughs> I knew what he was saying.
0: <laughs> yeah, I get it. Mm-hmm. Um, it's also it's just it's so beautifully in like 16th century kind of a language and the ideas of masculinity and uh, you know this kind of regional pride thing that I'm I'm really enjoying it. Yeah. Um, but you, I mean, I think that right. You've, you that was a perfect quote for you to just make the point. This is what we're this is what we're looking at here. Yes. So, um, he's
1: this kind of humanist scientist, but he's not without his patriotic bias and interest. So I think that's clear. Absolutely not. Uh, Yeah, absolutely.
0: Uh, There's uh, there the way the Italians speak of the Spaniards in this period is is, uh,
1: (laughs) pretty much. Yeah, exactly. They want uh, readers of uh, readers in sixteenth century Europe to understand that yes, the Spanish and the Iberians in general were doing these incredible things, but they wouldn't have been doing them if the Venetians hadn't done them first.
0: Well done. All right.
1: Um, and then in chapter four, you move move over to maps. That's right. So Venetian maps played this really significant, but until now, I think unrecognized role in the transmission of geographic information about the Americas. And what I mean by that is as students, even kind of in a, a survey history class, mentally, I think we tend to skip from Iberian expansion and conquest and colonization mm-hmm. right over to the Dutch an English mapping of the Americas, and mm-hmm. to skip from the likes of Columbus and Vespucci right away to Mercator and Ortelius, who mapped the New World in their atlases in the last quarter of the 16th century. But what I show here is that Venetians were some of the great transmitters of information between the Iberians and the Dutch and the English, meaning between the Iberian knowledge Uh, and the rest of uh, sort of other European audiences. And we can see this because Venetians actually printed more maps of the Americas in the 16th century than any other European city. So they didn't go there again, but they were the one producing this knowledge. And this was in part because the Spanish were incredibly secretive about their knowledge. When Spanish mariners and navigators came back from their voyages to the Western side of the Atlantic they actually had this kind of lockbox that they were required to put their information in, a lockbox that was overseen by two people, each with their own key. And they were sworn to secrecy, that they weren't allowed to tell anybody about new routes that they had discovered or any new geographic information that they had obtained. But through one channel or another, in particular through their ambassadorial relationships, the Venetians managed to obtain Quite a bit of information about Iberian voyages and published it as quickly as they could. So we can think of them as kind of these great newsmongers that were getting the word out to the rest of Europe, which they did in these travelogues that we've already talked about, and in particular, or in particular, were specific texts, but in a lot of maps as well. And, you know, a lot of European cities eventually came to publish maps about the New World. So the fact that Venice printed all these maps or printed a lot of them really isn't the only significant thing. But what I show later on in this chapter is that what we see, I think so fascinatingly when we look closely at these Venetian printed maps of the Americas, is that Venetian map makers regularly mapped Asian toponyms, or the names of Asian cities visited by Marco Polo, into the lands that we today call North America and Canada. And it was the way that they could sort of, I don't know, consciously or unconsciously kind of lay a claim for the Venetian role in the discovery of America. So there are a handful of toponyms that when you look at Venetian maps, you can easily go in and find them. One of them is Tolm, T-O-L-M. One of them is Anian, A-N-I-A-N. Another one is Agama, A-G-A-M-A. And these are all places that Polo visited on his journeys around China that the Great Khan sent him to check out. And fascinatingly, when we look on Venetian maps, we find these toponyms with great regularity, again, in in the part of the world that we today call Canada. Um, So no one really knew what was going on in this part of the world. It was kind of a blank uh, sort of canvas. And Venetian map makers with great consistency, mapped Polo's travels onto this part of the world. And what's interesting about this mapping is that even after maps became more quote-unquote accurate, mapmakers well into even the 18th century continued to place these names in this part of the world. So we see this great Venetian heritage to map making in the, of the New World, uh, again, much longer after the 16th century. So, even map makers like Ortelius and Mercator, the map makers that we tend to consider the first modern map makers from Holland and the Low Countries, who gave us the most or first accurate maps of the world, they're doing the same thing following in the wake of these Venetian maps. Uh, so, that's uh, how I try to show, again, the sort of Venetian contribution to uh, uh, the discovery of America with these maps and the Asian Polian names that they put in North America.
0: Hmm.
1: Very nice. Yeah. Yeah. Um, So it's as if you're saying Marco Polo went to the new world. We went there too. And once again, we went there first.
0: (laughs) And like, you know, spiritually, perhaps even in fact, um, interesting. Um, (laughs) And a little bit harder, a little bit better. Um, <laughs> yeah. But the idea that um, the literally the Venetians went there first is what you cover in chapter
1: five. Yes. Um, so a couple of chapters in my book survey broad swaths of material, a, a lot of catalogs or a lot of maps. And then there are a couple of chapters that focus in on one particular source, like the chapter that I wrote about Ramuzio. And this Chapter 5 is a chapter like that, where I focus in on this one slim but really intriguing book published in 1558 by a Venetian patrician writer named Niccolo Uh, And This is an incredibly long story, uh, or it can be a long story, but if we tell it quickly this patrician named Zen argued effectively that the Venetians went to North America in 1380 before the Colombian voyages. And the way he recounts this is that uh, Niccolò Zen in the 16th century Uh, discovered in the attic of his family's palazzo near the Church of the Jesuiti in Venice. You can actually see his palazzo still today. He claims that he discovered some papers in his family's attic that included a travelogue that described how his ancestors at the end of the 14th century traveled to the North Sea and from there to the West and landed in hitherto unknown lands that today we would call North America. And uh, Nicola Zen says that he discovered these papers when he was a boy, and he uh, didn't really think they were important, so he ripped them up. But then later, as an adult, he realized that they might have been important, and he claims that he pieced them back together, and he represents this story of his ancestors' voyage. And what's really interesting about this text is that throughout the 18th and 19th, and even into the 20th century, this is another very quote-unquote famous text. Historians have long been aware of it. And most of the debate about this book, about Niccolò Zen's travelogue, or his reporting of this travelogue, had to do with whether it was true or not. Did Venetians actually do this or not? And what I discuss in this chapter is that we're probably never going to know that, and maybe that question isn't even really that important, But what is important are the components of this text and how the text was composed. Because if we scrutinize this text closely, we can see that this writer, Niccolò Zen, collaged together quotes that we might even call plagiarized quotes from other travel accounts, for instance, from Amerigo Vespucci or from other Venetian cosmographers, and made his own kind of travel collage that patriotically, like Venetian mapmakers or Ramuzio, worked to insert Venice into the story of the discoveries. Uh, so that's what I show uh, in that chapter. And again, it's something that often kind of makes us laugh, that this guy took the time to invent this account to show that Venice mattered too, that Venice was in the game. A patrician of some
0: of of some note as well, right? one of the more important families of Venice. Um, and so there's there wasn't a there was a debate about the veracity of this account,
1: yeah. So I would say that from the time of its publication, there was a period when it it appears in the sixteenth and maybe into the sort of halfway into the seventeenth century, the account was accepted and seemed to be received unproblematically. And in fact, the account is accompanied by a map that shows the path of these Venetian voyages through the North Sea to a series of lands and islands. Uh, one of them is called uh, Drogeo, another one is called Estatiland, islands that we've never heard of before. And other European cosmographers at the time said, oh, the Venetians undertook these journeys and reproduced these hitherto unknown islands on their own maps. And this continued to pace maybe until the end of the 17th century, when other people started to go to that part of the world, to the North Atlantic, and said, we're not finding these islands. We don't see this Estati land, which generated this debate, again, primarily in the 19th century, where people said this didn't happen. He was a liar. He made it up. He falsified information. So that was the debate that really defined uh, discussions about this text for quite some time. And again, I think that We'll never know for sure unless some incredible uh, sort of new Mm -hmm. discovery is made. Uh, But in some ways, that doesn't even really matter. What matters, Mm -hmm. again, is this patriotic need to make sure that Venice still mattered uh, in the changing world of the 16th century.
0: Um, You know, and it isn't it's not that far fetched if you think that Marco Polo in in a similar time frame goes all the way to what is now Beijing. This is equally improbable um equally amazing.
1: And, yes, and yet and yet it could have happened and uh mm-hmm. it's uh again it maybe a longer story than we need to tell here but we can see that Niccolò Zen modeled his account in some ways on Marco Polo. Polo worked as a retainer of the great Khan in China and these Venetian travelers uh, according to his narrative worked as the retainers of these kings on these hitherto unknown islands. So we can see a parallel that would as you're putting it set it up to be believable.
0: Sure.
1: Yeah. <laughs> I I don't know. I might be in. Um. <laughs> it's interesting because it's actually kind of a surprising leap. I think for a lot of people to stop asking, "Did this really happen or not?" and what's the truth, and start asking instead, "Well, why did this text matter in a in a sixteenth century context?" It's a, sort of hard to give up the quest for the truth sometimes.
0: Well, and I mean that's actually that's a. When you teach Marco Polo, yeah. you have to come up to this. People always want to talk about whether or not it's true. Well, that's not the point.
1: Yes. Um, it is to some but, degree, but to some degree, it's also not. there's right. the sort of reception and effects of that text once it was released uh, with the rest of the flood of Venetian text about America at the time, right?
0: Um, absolutely. All right. So there's this little town in the Netherlands. It's called Heathorn. mm mm-hmm. Um, it's known for, uh, it's little canals, Uh tiny little, like the whole thing. It has almost no cars. Most people who live there take a boat. Um, it's kind of out in the middle of nowhere. It has, I don't I want to say too many people, but obviously it's a little bit bigger than that. And, um, one of the first things when I, when I move here and people tell me about, oh, you need to go visit the, go out, you need to leave the big cities. You don't want to just be in Amsterdam. Um, they talk about. This little town, and tell me it is, and I directly quoting here, the Venice of the Netherlands. <laughs> yes, there are a lot of Venices around. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, the argument has also been made that Amsterdam is the Venice of the <laughs> Netherlands, which is the city I live in. So I always find that very funny. But there's what they mean is that Giethorn Horn, and I'm I'm not pronouncing that because my Dutch accent's horrible. Um, is it's charming. And it's sweet and it's lovely and it's romantic in a way that in Amsterdam is apparently none of those things. So uh, I bring this up in to segue to Tenochtitlan, uh-huh.
1: the Venice of the New World. Right. So the last chapter of my book uh, turns to look at printed images. So not so much text per se, but images that were printed together with text, in particular in costume books. And also printed images of islands that were produced in, again, this genre that was very popular in the 16th century called Isolari or books of islands. They're sort of encyclopedic collections of islands around the world. And what I see in these printed images is that there's this real sort of regular comparison. Uh, on the part of these authors and printmakers between Venice and Mexico, and in particular between Venice and Tenochtitlan or Mexico City, Uh, which to me is interesting because I think that historians have a tendency when they write about the new world, to focus on accounts that really other the Americas, that talk about indigenous Americans as cannibals or monstrous or looking for, you know, sort of the the monstrous figures that medieval travel writers saw at the far-flung parts of the world. Uh, And that is certainly the case in many of these travelogues. But what Venetians are seeing here is kind of a, a reflection of themselves seen all the way on the other side of the world, Uh, meaning that Venetian printed city views of Tenochtitlan in many ways resembled printed views of Venice at the time, showing us again how writers saw in the Aztecs and their lagoon city on the other side of the world a kind of, again, distant reflection of themselves. And in addition, I talk about the way that Venetians equated the Aztecs with the noble founders of their own lagoon city in the Adriatic. They use similar descriptions and appearances to talk about these two different populations. Uh, Venetian engineers, as well, in the 16th century became curious about things like the maintenance of canals or the way that the Aztecs dredged their canals in Tenochtitlan and sort of kept them clean and navigable. So, the main point of this final chapter is again to show that. Uh, Venice took a, a bunch of different approaches to the new world. Sometimes, as we've seen, Venetian writers said, Col- Polo was more important than Columbus. Sometimes Venetians said, we got there first, like Niccolò Zen, And sometimes Venetian printmakers said, they're like us. We look like them and they look like us. And historically, we are a similar noble population. Um so you get the idea that if you put all of these different kinds of texts together whether they're maps or travel logs or printed images I think they work to proclaim a kind of Venetian expertise on the Americas and they they work to assert that Venetians were saying we don't have to go to the Americas to participate In the making of these new world empires, it was enough that we're going to produce these texts about America and in turn control and maybe subtly or not so subtly influence Europeans' knowledge about that. Uh, So, by doing this, they really assert their, again, continued relevance in this rapidly changing 16th century world where Venetians were no longer sort of masters of the universe, so to speak. When the Atlantic was beginning to eclipse the Mediterranean culturally and economically, Venetians used all of these forms of print culture to say again, we are still relevant. We we know maybe more than you do about this world.
0: Uh, that really is a great conclusion, actually, oh, well. for our conversation. That's that's your that's it in a nutshell, isn't it? But uh, before we close, uh, is there anything else we need to know? Anything you want our listeners to understand, or something to look for when they read it?
1: Um. I think that that really catches a lot of it. I think, you know, we've been over this, but just to reiterate a little bit that Venetians used this knowledge of the Americas to assert that they had been out in the wider world longer than anyone else. That if some historians refer to the 16th century as the first global age that unfolds in the wake of the Colombian voyages, Venetians would have been the first to say, well, we've been in the wider world actually for quite some time. That they had this global expertise and that the city of Venice in many ways embodied the world, and it always had since so many Venetians lived abroad and so many foreigners lived in the city of Venice. And I think that this great rhetorical effort, a lot of times when I give talks on this subject, people in the audience will ask, did this even really mean anything? I mean, the Iberians conquered, they had this incredible global empire. How can Venetians writing these little texts have meant anything at all? And my response to that is usually that uh, I think Venetians managed to assimilate the global rise of Spanish power into something that they could cope with in the impending decades and centuries of the city's decline, that this was a kind of a, rhetor- a rhetorical coping technique uh, to deal with the fact that they were going down and the Iberians <laughs> were going to become the masters of the world, that this mm-hmm. was their way of uh, sort of holding it at bay for as long as they could. Right. Um, wonderful. All right. So
0: what's next? What are you working on now?
1: So I am getting ready to publish next year, uh, a new book with my colleague, Alexander Nagel, who is an art historian at NYU. And our book is called amerasia And it's a direct spin-off of components of this book. And Amarasia argues that uh, we tend to think that the Colombian voyages inaugurated the discovery of America, that Europeans quickly mm-hmm. understood that Columbus had discovered a fourth and hitherto unknown continent. But our research shows that, in fact, many Europeans, not all Europeans, but many Europeans thought that the Americas and Asia overlapped or were in fact the same place for actually several hundred years. Mm -hmm. Uh, This is something that emerged for me in my uh, research on Venetian maps, and I talk about that in that chapter in this book we just discussed. And it just so happened about five or six years ago that I had a conversation about this with Alex, and he was interested in the same phenomenon from the point of view of images and paintings in particular. So he and I put our knowledge together and we generated a massive database of all of these different examples when Europeans, we could say, quote unquote, confused uh, America and Asia, or uh, I think better to say, understood them to be contiguous or overlapping, Uh, And we're getting ready to publish that book, and it's basically 18 short chapters, each of which explores an incidence uh, of an Amerasian event. Some are objects, some are maps, some are paintings, where we can see very clearly that uh, Europeans believed that, for instance, uh, Beijing and Tenochtitlan were the same place. Uh, as late even as 1700 in some instances. So it's a real sort of eye-opener, I think, to understand that the discovery of America happened over centuries and not as seamlessly as we might think. That sounds fascinating. I can't wait to read this. Well, i and- has a website that I will share with you. We have a digital humanities project that I will send on to you. And it can be easily found by anyone else who's interested. Mm-hmm. It's a map that sort of unveils some of these Amerasian concepts that you can kind of explore in the comfort of your own home and um, to be continued. But that's what's coming up next.
0: Oh, yes, yeah. Send that along and I will uh, link it in the little blurb that goes along with the web, the new books network website okay. or webpage. And- uh, that's very cool.
1: Uh, yeah. So that's what's coming up. Next. <laughs> and beyond that, your guess is as good as mine, but I am uh, really looking forward to getting back to Venice and the archives as soon as our global situation permits.
0: Uh, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Um, I particularly enjoy the idea that this, um, of, of that, this can shake up our non our notion of like conquest as a discrete item, yeah. and discovery is something that ends. You know, I love that. I love playing with those ideas. Like, uh,
1: yeah, I think and- it's because among historians of you know colonial America or colonial Latin Americanists or people who study the history of the New World. The word discovery has, of course, really been disparaged Mm -hmm. for good reason, because people had been living in the Americas since the the end of the last ice age. So I often tell my students that when you use the word discovery, it's as if I were to tell you, hey, I discovered your dorm today. And you would say, (laughs) you discovered my dorm. I've been living there all year. So there's a good reason for us to question a lot of the language that we use to describe Uh, the Americas or the New World. In fact, all of that language is really loaded. Even Western Hemisphere is laden with, you know, colonial meaning. So mm-hmm. it's it's problematic, but at the same time, hard to discard. But what I want to get across in a, a lot of what I say in my book here is that yes, the word discovery is problematic, but what we see here is that discovery often has to do with discovering uh, things about yourself. Uh, that you mm-hmm. didn't know. Uh, and I think the discovery in that context, that Venetians discover through the new world that they need to assert their past greatness, uh, that that is in fact a legitimate use of the word discovery for historians.
0: Um, yeah, and it, 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 there's, the connotation there is real. This is about, this, and this is, if you want to understand how Europeans engage with the world, this is how Yes, like it or not, you know? Um, so it's a good, it's a useful language though. Problematic. Um, that's, that's fascinating. We'll see what happens next. Maybe, uh, you know, the archives, the Venetian archives, there's, Just so much material, so many lifetimes worth of books
1: to write. Uh, There it is. And uh, if I remember correctly, I think this is disputed, but the Venetian archives, to the best of my understanding, I don't know what you've heard, Jana, are the third largest in Europe after the archives uh, at the Vatican, and then I think in Vienna. Uh, And I think I've always heard these statistics that if you were to put the, the text of the Venetian archive up... Uh, sort of shoulder to shoulder that they would maybe unfold over I don't know fifty kilometers or more. I don't know if I've ever believed those statistics, but it is an enormous archive, and there is it's true a lifetime of, of books being uh, sort of ready to to read and write. There uh, we just have to get over our. A uh, horrible present moment. I get back
0: to it. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Just really, really, I, I, I mean, the archives are nice. I would also just like a coffee at the Um it's at awesome. this stage. I'm willing to, my, my needs are, are late, are little. Um, all right. Thank you so much, Elizabeth Horadovich. The book is The Venetian Discovery of America. Um, you can look for it in all the places that fine academic literature is sold. Um, and I'll, t- I'll see you again next time. Thanks so much. Thanks so much.